0: You're listening to the Energy Policy Podcast, a production of Colorado State University, the Center for the New Energy Economy. I'm your host, Tom Plant. I'm your co-host, Jeff Ling. And this week, we're talking about the second paper in our summer series of research papers. Uh, We're looking at, during the summer series, we're looking at energy efficiency and renewable energy. This is the second paper. This one's dealing with energy efficiency, but where the first paper looked sort of backward at what have been the foundational policies and what are the characteristics of those foundational policies, this paper looks a little bit broader. It looks at some of the policy innovations, some of the places that energy efficiency policy has gone, and what some of those opportunities are for the future, particularly in those states that are seeing the expiration of their energy efficiency resource standards. Yeah,
1: exactly. So I, I think we can do this, since this is our podcast. If you, if you didn't <laughs> listen to the first paper podcast go back and listen to that one go listen to that one because because a lot of the same stuff applies here but we we talk about the the eers paper the conventional approach the energy efficiency resource standards that have been the really which which have sustained the energy efficiency market in the u.s for the last two decades Um, uh, and so that first paper really talks about how to drive market certainty Mm -hmm. for those mandates Whereas the second paper what we did was we took a step back and said okay what what is the what is a complete list of policies right kind of a handbook that that are not an EERS but what but which we create a market and also drive market certainty for energy efficiency at the state level
0: yeah and a lot of these a lot of these policies also work together and they mm-hmm. work you know they can combine to make a very strong program so for example This uh, paper that uh, we're discussing here, we've broken out these policies into five different categories, regulatory mechanisms, financing programs, technology-specific energy efficiency. We can talk about what that means. Um, The administration of programs, and then because how you run a program is actually has a huge mm-hmm. impact on on mm-hmm. the effectiveness, and then finally focusing in on low income communities. Wow,
1: we did a really good job of organizing this paper. Yeah,
0: we actually we that was we very we made of us. it was we made we made categories, and then we put things in categories. So
1: we have twenty ideas, <laughs> twenty policy ideas in those categories. Yeah, I don't know. is well. I see. There's a list of twenty. Oh, so, okay. okay. Um, so it turns out there's quite a lot that states can do. Yeah. You know, outside of the EERS, and I think what you're pointing out with those categories, Tom, is that there are a lot of different ways in which public policy actually touches the deployment of, of energy efficiency. And it's not just about um, utility policy, mm-hmm. but it's also about financing. It's about access to financing. It's about access to information, access to services. It's It's all of these things. And so <clears throat> we wrote this second paper really to serve as kind of a handbook. Yeah. You know, what, what is a, what is a range of policy options? I think one of the things that we go into in the regulatory mechanisms that, to me, is, is really quite important is is getting the incentives right. You know, uh, if, you th- if you think about electric utilities at a basic sense, they make money on volumetric sales. They sell you kilowatt hours uh, at a certain price, at a certain rate, and they make a rate of return on the kilowatt hours that they sell to you. So right, the more so, you use,
0: the more they make. Yeah, and so what's their incentive for you to use less? Right, exactly. <laughs> and that's
1: the, that really has been, I think, the crux over the last couple of decades of how to realign the incentives. and And, I mean, this is nothing new. California decoupled rates uh, sales from profits for utilities in the 1980s. Yeah, you know, and, and, and,
0: so. and when they did that, they really saw a flattening yeah. of their uh, energy demand. And so one of the things that you know we like to tell states when we're talking to them about decoupling policies or any, any of these kinds of policies is that decoupling is not – it doesn't make necessarily energy efficiency – Advantageous, it just takes away the disincentive. It takes away that inherent disincentive that a utility has, even though they may want to be more efficient. They say, "Well, we get our money from sales, so if we're trying to, you know, respond to there's our no, investors, there's no upside. Yeah, why, why would we want to sell less widgets? You know, and yeah, then, yeah. So, so it takes away that that disincentive. almost like a
1: farm subsidy in a way, right? Yeah. So, so. Decoupling, and I I think the um, and not every state has uh, revenue and sales decoupling for. um, By the way, it has to be done for electric and natural gas, so it has Mm -hmm. to sort of separate decoupling. In fact, here in Colorado, public service company of Colorado actually has a proposal in front of the commission uh, to for decoupling. They've Mm -hmm. had a form of decoupling; I wouldn't say it was true decoupling, but they have a proposal now in front of the commission. So, to your point, you have to kind of get to neutral. Yeah. With decoupling, right. And then on top of that, um, are the are the incentives? Right. Sure. You've How got, do utilities make money deploying demand side management?
0: Right. So you've got utility incentives, um, and you know, and then on the programmatic side, you may have customer incentives. And mm-hmm. one of the one of the other questions that comes up around around this is, you know, there, most states have a requirement that any in, energy efficiency investment by the utility be cost effective and you know people look at that and say yeah that makes sense should be a cost effective investment but how you measure cost effectiveness can have an enormous impact on what po- what programs what technologies are available to the customers
1: yeah. and
0: so the appropriate measurement of cost effectiveness is really it's one of those things that people kind of glaze over because it's you know well how are we going to structure this test doesn't seem very sexy, but the idea that all of your investment should be cost effective is, and they're very, they're very much tied together.
1: Yeah, and this is—I actually, I think we had a podcast on this. Yeah, we did. No, yeah. so, but this is so so important and and so so boring. <laughs> um, but it's, it's never stopped us before. But let's let's. <laughs> but so let us regale you with uh, with how boring it is. No, but. Let's take one, one example. So let, let's, say, let's talk about um, a utility attic insulation program. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're the utility, I'm the customer. Um, you have to achieve a certain amount of MCF of gas savings uh, from home heating. And so you're the program manager for, for, for the attic insulation program, and I'm a customer that wants to install attic insulation. So I, I apply to the program. To get a rebate, let's just make up a number, two hundred yeah. so um, bucks. two hundred bucks. Um And the project cost is a thousand
0: mm-hmm.
1: for me to insulate my attic. Um, so I apply to your to your program. I get a two hundred dollar rebate. I hire a contractor if I can find one, and they insulate my attic, and I get R sixty in my attic. And uh, but I've had to come up with eight hundred bucks, mm-hmm. and I probably actually had to come up with a thousand bucks. And then and many the months rebate. later, I got a rebate yeah. of $200. There's one test that's primarily used, the total resource cost test, that says the total cost of that measure, as it's called, is 1000 bucks.
0: And so the cost effectiveness of your savings is measured against $1,000 cost. Right. It's divided into $1,000. As opposed, Even though it's only cost the utility customer base, it's only cost them $200, right? That's your rebate. That's the and rebate
1: the, that my neighbors kind of pay. I and my neighbors pay into a fund that, that I
0: right. participated it, in. The interesting thing about that, so in your example, it cost you $1,000 for the whole program and the utility's giving you a $200 rebate. The utility could decrease that rebate to $100, or they could increase that rebate to $500. And the total resource cost test would not see any difference in the cost effectiveness of that investment, which is sort of counterintuitive. You'd think, well, if I can get that many MCF of savings for $100 instead of $500, well, $100 would be more cost effective, right? But using that TRC as a measure. It's not. It's the same because it's including the total cost that goes to the customer. So interestingly enough, the TRC is the most common
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, measure of cost effect- effectiveness around the country. Um, and so that's one of the issues that we, we talk about. Oh, it's absolutely... Here.
1: Yeah. And to go, if I could, yeah. one step further, if a different test was applied, say the utility cost test, the cost of that measure... Instead of a thousand dollars, so the numerator mm-hmm. um, is two hundred dollars, right. because that's the utilities cost. That's the societal cost. I'm conflating these a little bit because there's actually a test called the societal cost test. But yeah. um, if you're still listening, uh, anyone <laughs> out there, th- th- it's a big difference because yeah. you can imagine something that costs a thousand bucks versus two hundred bucks to get the same amount of savings. You're going to get a lot different. Um, Numbers cost of programs that yeah. actually pass cost effectiveness. So, if we've if uh, there, there's anyone else listening out there still, cost <laughs> effectiveness tests are something that we really talk about a lot, and we really think there's a need to focus in on them.
0: And there are some states that have all cost effective requirements. Again, getting back to yep. this cost effectiveness, you have to do anything that's cost effective. We also talk about financing programs, and you know these are another one of those things in here uh, that. They're really important components because a lot of times people are saying, you know, I'd love to do that insulation upgrade. I'd love to do the window upgrade. I'd love to do the refrigerator upgrade, whatever it is, you know, that's going to increase the efficiency of my of my home but it's a big upfront cost. And the savings that I'm going to feel are actually going to be spread out over a long period of time, month Sometimes month. not that long, sometimes
1: a year or so. But to, but to your point, yeah, yeah, there's an upfront cost You save
0: period. on your bill, right? Yeah. So you save every month, but you have to pay upfront. So being able to align the savings with the cost by financing things and making payments, um, that, that really helps people get to that finish line of, okay, I'm going to make this upgrade. So we talk about a variety of financing programs in here. Um, Mm -hmm. And then- Bill financing. yep, Revolving loan funds, green banks, uh, performance contracting for- Right, right. I think another
1: element of the financing that you're mentioning are some of these preferred products or or approved products. Mm -hmm. You know, if uh, your dishwasher goes out or your clothes washer or your water heater, water heater is a better one, my water heater goes out, I need a water heater asap. Yeah. And and if it's efficient, that's great. But I need a water heater yeah. number one, right? So a lot of these programs not only bring financing, but they have sort of restrictions on you know, here's the product that you you must install, and here's the, somebody that can install it for you, or here's a place where you can get
0: it. Yeah. So you make it you make it attractive yeah. to to get that more efficient uh, item. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the other ca- another category here that might be a little bit confusing to people: technology-specific energy efficiency.
1: Boy, that's what a think tank term that is. <laughs> who came um, up with that, Jeff? Who came up with that? <laughs> well, here what we're talking about are um, we're drilling in on policies that have to do with a subset of of the of the market. Of course, th- we're talking about a range of technologies, from insulation to um, Um, ac units to um, home energy monitoring to you know uh, large-scale demand response deployed by utilities it's a range of different products that that fall under the spectrum of demand side management so we're drilling down here on things like building codes combined heat and power smart grid Um, those are things that are obviously um, applicable to just those technologies Um, for example building codes this has really been a Bread and butter kind of uh, demand side management type program and energy efficiency program, um, but states are very unique in the way they adopt building codes. Mm-hmm. As you know, Tom, from your time in the Colorado Legislature, some states are restricted in how they whether they can adopt a statewide building code. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, if they can, what happens? How often do
0: they um,
1: up it? These codes come out. it? Yeah, exactly.
0: Updated. Because yeah, as you were saying, that the 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 IECC comes out every three years with a new building code, mm-hmm. um, and which are typically
1: more stringent.
0: Which are more stringent. They yeah. they have a certain percentage increase in efficiency over the previous yeah. uh, building code. But if you're writing into statute, for example, that we're going to use the twenty sixteen building code, well.
1: 2016 comes and goes. 2016
0: comes and goes, and and, goes and, yeah. and and then you have to go back to the legislature to update it. So really, having some sort of a mechanism for continuous review and update of that is uh, important. Uh, combined heat and power is uh, another another sort of what we call technology specific that really goes towards, um, you know, not only trying to get that high efficiency use of electricity and heating in that same unit, but also how is that you know, there's there's differential across the country on how combined heat and power is considered within uh, a utility. How it's defined. Yeah, yeah, how it's defined. Is it an efficiency program? Yeah. Is it a, you know, a waste heat program? Is it a renewable program? Is it, you know... That doesn't sound like it would be
1: important, but it really is because, yeah. because if you don't give a technology a home in public policy, then you don't know what the rules are. And right. I think CHP has been really suffered from that. It's a fantastic technology where you are using the waste heat from generating electricity for um, for heating, mm-hmm. and actually, actually also for cooling, absorption chilling. So it's a fascinating technology that um, has has um, suffered a little bit from some policy from uh, not having a real
0: clear home. Exactly right. Um, <clears throat> another another one is uh, smart grid. We've we've talked a little bit of, on this uh, podcast about smart grid, and that's something that's it's really. You know, really creating a platform uh, for a variety of other policies, a variety of other uh, technologies, but having, uh, you know, really bringing the utility sector into the information age. We've seen how uh, access to data Mm -hmm. can help our lives in a variety of different ways, make us more efficient in, you know, how we schedule appointments, make us more efficient in how we manage uh, you know, our, our phone calls or our work day. But when it comes to the utility, we haven't really used that data that's associated with our energy use in an effective way.
1: Some, I, I think some have. Some utilities <coughs> would say they've done, done a lot, and I think they have. But by and large, I mean, if you can imagine a meter collecting a data point every 15 minutes for every house and building and commercial building out there, that's a lot of data. And um, there are <clears throat> there are data privacy concerns about that uh, that are very real and need to be addressed. Right. But then there are these also some huge opportunities at the consumer level to manage their bills, at the utility level to identify which, you, which customers would be great candidates for certain programs. And just imagine sort of the, the turning on, the freeing of that data, what could be done with it. That's one of the things that we talk about in the smart grid section.
0: Right. And and this also ties into another one of the policies, which is location-specific energy efficiency. So really trying to put a value, a differential value Mm -hmm. of energy efficiency measures at specific places within the grid that can most benefit from that efficiency measure.
1: If you think about when the power goes out, it typically goes out in a neighborhood or a few neighborhoods. It doesn't typically go out utility system wide. And so, how can demand side management and demand response, when those outages are occurring because of high loads, how can you deploy those technologies to prevent that from happening? And there's a, there's a different value depending on where you are.
0: You know, finally, we talk about in this paper, we talk about some of the, um, the administration of various different programs and trying to get to the most efficient administrative structure for an energy efficiency program. Um, and some of the examples that we see around the country on that. And then finally, into low-income programs. So every state in the country uh, has an administrator of the federal weatherization program, which Mm -hmm. is a federally funded, uh, low-income weatherization, higher increasing efficiency in low-income homes um, around the country. So there's already an infrastructure there of people who are delivering these services from this federal program. But there are ways in which states can build off that. There's ways in which states can amplify the impact of of those investments. And so we talked about that a little bit in our low income section.
1: Yeah, a lot of ideas, a lot of options. And that's really what this paper was all about is to sort of look at, we call it unconventional. In many cases, these policies have been out there for a very long time. In some cases, they're, they're brand new Well, they're not completely brand new ideas. They're in place at least someplace. Um, But that was the point of this paper, this how to drive market certainty, um, but thinking outside of an energy efficiency resource standard as the only means of getting there.
0: Right. So uh, check out the link to this paper, the white paper, State Policies to Expand Market Certainty for Energy Efficiency, without an energy what a title. A resource standard. Yes, it rolls right off the tongue. And uh and it's a whole lot of ideas in there, a lot of discussion. You can also combine, you know, reading this paper with uh, the Spot for Clean Energy database, which we'll also include a link to that, Definitely. spotforcleanenergy.org. And that is uh, really looks across the country at uh, a, a number of these policies mm-hmm. and you can see where your state is in terms of adopting these policies spot for you've been listening to the energy policy podcast the production of colorado state university and the center for the new energy economy i'm tom plant and i'm jeff ling your co-host thanks a lot for listening